0: Hey guys, it's Edge Martinez. They call me the voice of New York. And 50 years ago, hip-hop started right here in New York City. And we're celebrating the five boroughs all year long. Check out nyctourism.com forward slash hip-hop for cultural stories, events, interviews, and more. nyctourism.com forward slash hip-hop. What's going on, everyone? This is Tyler Dunn with the Go Long podcast. Thank you very much for making this part of your life. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Uh, this edition of the podcast is going to be our happy hour with the great Peter King of NBC Sports, the longtime Sports Illustrated writer. Uh, he joined subscribers last week on our weekly happy hour and to not disappoint, Peter got into all things Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. We might disagree, but it's hard to uh, argue with the points Peter makes as well. Uh, We get into the vaccine, we talk about Toradol and the effect of that drug not being around locker rooms, having on pain in the NFL, and and we really get into the Hall of Fame process and a few players that Peter believes should absolutely be in the Hall of Fame. So hope everybody enjoys. As always, you can subscribe to the Go Long newsletter anytime for $7 a month. Or seventy a year at Golongtd.com. I think you're going to love everything we have in store for you. Um, right at the newsletter, every story delivered to your email inbox, and you get access to these happy hours to ask people around the NFL anything you want over a beer five. So I uh, hope to see you soon on the next happy hour. In the meantime, here's the replay with Peter Kane. what's your beer we don't we don't do it enough we don't ask it enough but let's let's go around the horn i bet you have a thin man wow you know about thin man
1: oh my god thin man i had a thin man uh beer during the pandemic and i wrote about it i it was either a pale ale or a pilsner i forget and it's really good and those people they wrote to me and they said hey Thanks for the the, the plug. I, we'd love to send you some. And I said, ah, oh, it's okay, but you know, I like Man.
0: <laughs> hey, you got to take it, Peter. Come on, we won't we won't say anything. We won't say nothing. Take that free beer.
1: <laughs> oh, I've taken a few in my time.
0: It's it's a good spot. That's downtown Buffalo. It's like a newish kind of brewery on Elmwood. Uh, really sharp, but yeah. How well, I got my here. How
1: is the craft beer scene in Buffalo? It's really good. It's really it? good.
0: Yeah, and I know we have mostly Green Bay folks in here right now, but yeah. and then we have I think we got one Buffalonian out in San Boston, Diego. Boston Boston guy? But, okay, we got we got a Bostonian, that's okay, right. Okay, good. Um, I'm I, I don't okay. live in Buffalo, but I'm from Buffalo. I live in the
2: Boston area, but yeah, a lot of good a lot of good small breweries in the, in western New York.
0: It's yeah. blown up the last couple of years, hasn't it? I mean, all over the place. I feel like there's a new brewery popping up every couple of months. That's it's the whole, whole thing. Months. You
1: know, I learned uh I learned on a training camp trip maybe four or five years ago, there was a little brewery in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where the Carolina Panthers do training camp. And I went to their, um, uh, I went to their brew pub one night, and they had incredible, they, they had this beer, this ale called Son of a Peach. It was a peach <laughs> ale with Georgia peaches. It was phenomenal. And so you learn that. I mean, that's what's going on all over the country. These imaginative people are, are brewing beer, and it's really kind of a cool deal.
0: As much as I love your football analysis, I love it when you go on your training camp tour and you're just thro- throwing <laughs> in these random brewery
1: nuggets. Like, from Hey, listen, I'm going to tell you, you know what is one of the best training camp stops every year? It's the Pittsburgh Dairy Barn. I'm done with my interondic chair. Sure. Oh, Pittsford Pittsford has an incredible uh sort of uh ice cream place and you know fresh milk and, and all that stuff. It's fantastic. But anyway, you find these little fun places everywhere you go on the camp tour. I love it.
0: I love it. Well, the man needs needs no introduction everybody knows the great Peter King. Uh it's so great to have you here just to BS about football, you know, little this, little that. We'll we'll get into everything, but um I don't just so people know like Peter, I am trying to remember the first time we met. I want to say it was training camp in 07 or 08. I was just a, an intern out with Bob and those guys on the beat in college. And I'll just, I'll never forget this, but just so people know how great of a person you are. Like you have every reason to ignore some college kid, you know, trying to strum up conversation during a practice. And I knew you had a family. I knew you had kids. I knew you had somehow pulled off having a family life and pursuing work and being the best to do it in the whole country. And I asked you like, how in the hell you did it. And I'll never forget. You said, you you'd wake up at like three thirty four a.m. Yeah, work up to when the kids went to school and then take the kids to school, come back, go from there. But that little window of opportunity there before the kids went to school was like your golden
1: period to get stuff done. I'll, I'll never forget it.
0: And I think we talked for like a half hour, right at practice. It was amazing.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that's, I think you have to find ways if you, really want to be good at this job and if you also want to uh have a family which you know i i started this job the year that uh when i was in cincinnati i had a like a six-month-old daughter um you know who's now 37 and i had a six-month-old daughter (laughs) and I was I had this opportunity to go cover the Cincinnati Bengals and I knew that it was gonna be labor intensive, but I said, hey, we, you know, that's it's something that I really want to do, but I also wanna be, you know, I also wanna to try to be a good dad. The ironic part of this, Ty, is that, you know, when I went to Cincinnati, that was the that was sort of the latter days of the big red machine. You know, I got there in 1980 and I was a 23 year old backup covering the Cincinnati Reds and being uh, doing sidebars and and giving guys days off and all that stuff. But what I'll never forget is the four guys who covered the team at the time, two in Dayton and two in Cincinnati, those four guys, they were all divorced. And so I got it in my mind that. Hey, you know, maybe baseball, because I really kind of thought it would be fun to to cover baseball because I love baseball. And as a kid, that was my, that was my game. But uh, I remember I said to, to my wife one day, I told her, I said, man, all four guys covering this beat, they're all divorced. I said, we may have to have some second thoughts about the career path. But then, you know, in 84, I started covering the Bengals and and uh, it's been really good. And even though it's a lot of work, it does allow you a little bit more home time than a lot more home time, honestly, than uh, if you covered baseball.
0: Well, you're, you're definitely like a, a beacon of hope for younger guys like myself, you know, with one little girl and one boy on the way, it's like just trying to balance that all out. It's, yeah, it's, it's not easy. So, yeah, you know, I, the way we kind of do this, Peter, I mean, we've got about, I think we got 19 people in here. So, you know, if, if folks have something to ask, if we just kind of want to go one direction or the other, we'll just kind of free flow it. I mean, it's a it's a pretty uh cordial bunch and we'll just roll from there. But we got a lot going on, right? I mean, you're you're all over everything from Packers to Julio Jones to Roger. Goodell. I, I know we got fans <laughs> from all over the country, so um, if anybody just wants to uh you know get their burning question rolling here, go ahead.
1: Here comes go pack go. <sighs>
3: Hey, Pierre, <laughs> Brandon. Uh, thanks so much for for taking the time. This sure. this thing that ties put together is just phenomenal. So, uh, I get to ask you probably the same question that you know hundred people have already asked you. But uh, I'm looking forward to the upcoming football season. Now, it's, it's probably going to go one way or the other. And September through December for the the last 29 years of my life have been pretty good with Aaron Rodgers and uh, Brett Favre. So. Mr. Peter Kane, where is Aaron Rodgers playing football in 2021?
1: <laughs> I mean, I I'm I'm still a naive doofus. I I I mean, I if I if I had to put a buck down right now and say where's he going to play, I'll say Green Bay, just because. Look, I, I I was thinking of this story today. I'm I'm writing a little bit about the Packers in my column for Monday and Rogers and, you know, trying to throw darts like everybody else. <laughs> but uh, I thought of this today and I thought, you know, the one thing that, so 13 years ago, the Green Bay Packers had this incredible crisis on their hand. Brett Favre retires in March and he, basically wants to come back and he starts thinking like in may and june hey listen i want to play i wasn't ready to make that decision in march i've decided i want to play again mm-hmm. well every other year he said that the packers bowed to his wishes and now in 2008 they didn't bow to his wishes and so and and i've, I've told a few of the principals involved in this story this story that In 2008, because I had covered Favre so much in the 90s and early 2000s for Sports Illustrated, I mean, I had a direct line to him. And so the weekend before Packers camp opened and the weekend before veterans were going to report, I was in Mississippi and I was with Brett and uh, his wife, Deanna, and also with his agent, Buzz Cook down at his home in uh, uh, right outside of Hattiesburg. So one of the things that it was very, very clear is that Buzz Cook um, thought that if Favre reported, he would kind of force their hand and that he would kind of make them uh, release Favre. And so I, I thought to myself, well, I've been talking to Ted Thompson in the last week or so. um, And uh, that's, that's not going to happen. He's not releasing Brett Favre and letting him go play in Minnesota. He's just not going to do it because you all know that Favre would have gone to either Minnesota or Chicago in free agency. Mm -hmm. So that night uh, Buzz Cook left. And I remember I, I had a, uh, Farve and I and Deanna were sitting there in his kitchen. And he he basically, we were talking about, hey, you know, what do you think? what do you, What do you think is going to happen? And I said, hey, Brett, Ted Thompson's not letting you go. <laughs> he just, it's not happening. And I said, he would be hung in effigy in Green Bay and throughout a lot of Wisconsin if he released you And you went to go play for the Vikings. So I just don't see that happening. And, and so I, even though this is a little bit of a different story, this thing really reminds me an awful lot of Brett Favre and, you know, 2008, obviously there are some differences, but you have a quarterback who thinks he has earned the right to do whatever he wants after everything he's done for football in green Bay. And don't you think that deep down Aaron Rodgers feels the same way that Brett Favre feels or that Brett Favre felt? And so that's why to me, but, but look, I'm not saying Brian Gutekunst because he doesn't have the track record yet of a Ted Thompson or a Ron Wolf, but who has he learned football from? You know, who is he sat at the right hand of and learned? I mean, There is a Green Bay tradition about general managers and the Green Bay tradition about general managers essentially says the general manager picks the players, the coach coaches the players and the players play and never the the three twain shall meet. And so that's why to me, I think that it would be fair if Mark Murphy said to Brian Gutekunst, hey, listen, you gotta have more of an open door policy for the the prime players on your team. Life is changing. It doesn't make any sense to just say, this is the way we do things. That's how old business is, is done. You know, and what harm does it do to have Aaron Rodgers come in for a half hour every other week, 10 times during the season, to sit in your office and say, you know, here's what I think. We absolutely should not cut Jake Kumero. That's idiotic. We, sh- we shouldn't do this. <laughs> and look, <clears throat> those are his opinions, but it, it's not that, it's not that uh, that Gutekunst has to do those things, but what's wrong with feeling out your superstar to find out what he's thinking. So anyway, I that's a long-winded answer, long-winded way of me saying I have no idea what's going to happen. But if I had to guess, I would say Rodgers plays for the Packers this year. Just a guess. So
3: is is it a is it a, a a list of things that he's upset about? Like I know he went on Kenny Kenny Maine on ESPN and he said it's about uh the people, the people make the organization, but yeah. you know. Is it when they, you know, let the quarterbacks coach go in 2018? I mean, was it Uh, I think he uh, feels
1: like his, he feels like his opinion doesn't matter. And he thinks that for what he's done and what he's accomplished in the game, his opinion should matter. I think it just simply comes down to that. I don't think it's that complicated. This is not about a contract. Yeah. This is not about because, you know, he's going to make his money. He's going to get one more huge contract, no matter whether he plays in green Bay or somewhere else. So it it just isn't about the money. It's about the fact that, you know, and look, I wrote this week, and I think I was off a little bit, that that essentially the, um, you know, the Packers never told them uh, that they were drafting Jordan Love. And I guess they called them right, you know, momentarily before the pick was there. But clearly, you know, if you trade up, to draft a quarterback in the first round of a draft, you know that that's on the table, you know? And I I just think, you know, the Packers have been doing things like it's 1991 and 1967. And it's just, it's time to change.
0: Would that change anything though, Peter? Like if they tell Aaron Rodgers, like this is- It's a matter of respect.
1: I Ty, I honestly think it's a matter of respect. If they tell Aaron a week beforehand, if, if LaFleur and Gutekunst get on a call with Rodgers and say, listen, we're going to tell you what we're thinking. We don't know that this is going to happen, but we're thinking of taking uh, a quarterback late in the first round of this draft. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with there is a quarterback we really like a lot. We think the value would be great to get Jordan Love right here. We don't know that it's going to happen, but we want to alert you that we're really interested in it. It says nothing about you. We love you, all that. But, you know, when a quarterback gets to entering his late thirties, you got to think about the future. Now, look, if Aaron Rodgers is going to have a hard on over that, that's just the way it goes. It's, you know, you can't, there's nothing you can do about it. He might
0: sabotage it. He might sabotage that, right?
1: I doubt it. I I doubt, I really doubt it because I, look- I do not believe for a second that Aaron Rodgers told Adam Schefter that, you know, that, uh, that he was pissed off and he wanted out. I just, I don't, I just don't see, I I don't see it. I just don't think, I don't think he did that. I think, look, nobody here needs me to tell them, but there's about 15 people who could have told Adam and I bet about eight of them did exactly what was going on and how angry Aaron was about things. But, Anyway, I don't mean to monopolize that, but I just wanted to tell you what I thought.
3: Real real quick, Peter, real quick going back, and I swear I'll let somebody else ask you a question after this. But <laughs> yeah. uh, <You> Sure. <laughs> going back to that, Tom Silverstein of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, uh, who's also on the beat. I'm sure Ty knows him very well. You might even know him too, Peter. But, sure. yeah, um fantastic. He reported he was on a local uh, Milwaukee sports radio station. He, quote, unquote, I guess, broke the news. He said – According to multiple sources within the organization, their number one target in that draft, that 2020 draft, was Justin Jefferson. Yeah. And then it was Brandon Ayuk. Now, I'm sure, had they had had their eyes on Jordan Love, that, that they may have called him prior to five minutes. <laughs> but is it something along the lines of it's how the board felt? They traded up because I think the they were trying to get Ayuk. And then obviously – San Francisco slid in right before them. So I really don't, I mean, is that fault of the organization? Like, Hey, they, maybe maybe not, maybe not,
1: but, but, but the fact is you traded up and picked a quarterback when you had an MVP quarterback on your roster and the way the world is working now, I remember two or three years ago, Rogers saying all the food he has given up. You know, because he wants to play uh, a while longer, and I know this is going to sound weird, but like all these quarterbacks now, they look at Brady and to a lesser mm-hmm. degree Breeze, and they think, "What? Wh- why not me? I, I can I can do that too." So mm-hmm. that's the only thing. It could this have all been an amazing uh, series of odd events? Yes. But at the end of the day, here's what Rodgers sees. My team just traded up to pick a quarterback. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to show them. In some ways, what just happened this year reminds me a little bit of Brady after Garoppolo was drafted in 2014. Because in the four years that Garoppolo was on the roster, three and a half really, Tom Brady won one MVP and two Super Bowls. You know he was whether or not he was quote energized end quote whatever he wanted to stick it up their rear end. It's one of the reasons why, in my opinion, I, I I'm a little down on Carson Wentz. They take Jalen Hurts, and what does Carson Wentz do? Oh man, they drafted a quarterback. They you know, and and I don't think he. I think I think a competitive guy says in essence, um, I, I'll show you. But anyway,
0: right. Rogers could do that, right? They wanted to be the quarterback. He could. He could. He say could. That right I
1: now. asked Gutikens on the weekend that they drafted Jordan Love. What happens if Rodgers responds and plays great? He goes, "Win for the Packers yep. because we'll be getting great play out of the quarterback position." And I don't think he was lying. He didn't want Aaron Rodgers to stink, and Aaron Rodgers didn't.
3: And to defend the organization, the 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 couple years leading up until, uh, 2020, 2021, Rogers had a few down years. I mean, I know there was a, there was yep. an injury there, but injuries. you know, green Bay was looking out as an insurance policy type thing of, you know, they didn't know he was going to go out and have an MVP year. I mean, he's, he's up there in age too. I know the Brady's and the breezes are now playing until their mid forties, but you know, for a guy with multiple collarbone injuries and, uh, durability issues and, 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 and some down years, I, I mean, I tend to side. I don't I want to like pick a side, but I tend to lean towards the organization with stuff like that. Yeah.
1: Title Town Lounge, what do you got?
4: Uh thank you very much, Peter. I appreciate you taking my question. Um, what I wanted to ask you, you know, we saw Tom Brady go down to Tampa last year and we saw the organization's willingness to put all of the pieces around him that he wanted. We saw some pretty high-profile names, you know, Grant coming out of retirement, LaShawn McCoy. And then obviously this year, Bruce Arians comments about how he brought Brady in to have him scout wide receivers. They obviously want to have his input. They want to have him involved with the front offices organizations. Do you think this sets a dangerous precedent for elite hall of fame quarterbacks, or do you think this is the standard that should exist with front offices in the NFL?
1: I remember after the, uh, the Ravens, this is early on in Joe Flacco's career. Um, uh, it might have been after he won the Super Bowl there. I forget, but it was It was still like in the first half of his Ravens career. They asked him one year, hey, look, here's a list of wide receivers we're looking at for the draft. Uh, do you have any interest in looking at them and scouting them? And Flacco said, yeah, I'll take a look at them. And he never really followed through with that. And so I don't think asking a quarterback to look at Uh, the receivers in this draft or this class of free agents is really revolutionary. As a matter matter of fact, I think it's pretty smart. Um, If if I were, if I were a quarterback, wouldn't I want to have some say, or at least, wouldn't you want to know my opinion when I look at guys of how they look and whether I think they ought to be the next receiver on our team. So, I don't really look at it that way, and plus, it's there's a difference between listening to a guy and letting the guy dictate your decisions, and look, I think Tom Brady is a singular player in football history when it comes to this, because think about it. If Tom Brady, Tom Brady, it's been well-documented that last year he wanted Antonio Brown, and I shouldn't say luckily, but I, I, I guess you can't. Luckily for Antonio Brown, uh, the Bucks had a lot of receiver injuries early in the year last year. And so, you know, go, uh, Chris Godwin got hurt three times in the first seven weeks of the season last year, they needed help at receiver. And so Brady said, listen, I, I know this guy, I vouch for him. I'll make sure he stays on the straight and narrow. And they, they went for him. And, and honestly, Here's my question. I understand that you think it might take a precedent, but, but don't you want your quarterback to be excited about the guys who you're picking up? I would. And so that's why, in my opinion, I think I I do, I don't want Aaron Rodgers picking the players and signing them and all that stuff. I want Aaron Rodgers advice.
4: Do you think, uh, you know, as far as Rogers is concerned, do you think him seeing what is going on in Tampa Bay is maybe fueling yes. his yes. feud with Green Bay?
1: <laughs> I don't. I mean, look. Did you see Russell Wilson during the Super Bowl twice? They showed him sitting in Roger Goodell's box at the Super Bowl with his wife, and he just he looked like he just ate a dung sandwich, <laughs> and he just was he was miserable he was absolutely miserable. And so I I look at him and I you know, I what he's got to be thinking. Look at what Tampa did for Brady. And again, look, Brady's won 6 Super Bowls walking into Tampa. So, of course you're going to move heaven and earth to try to get him and you're going to ask him his opinion on everything. But I do think that with Russell Wilson and with Aaron Rodgers whatever, infinitesimal, infinitesimal to microscopic to decent size, somewhere in there is what they see and they have Brady envy.
0: Man. I, I will say this though. Marquez Valdez-Scandlin, hundred yards in that NFC championship game. He, he Supporting cast was pretty good. It was pretty good.
1: Hey, look, they led the NFL in scoring. Not so, bad, right? Yeah. I don't I, look. I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily siding with those who say that he he hasn't uh, they haven't given him enough help because I don't believe that yeah but the the only thing that I fault the Packers for the only one is that they really have not done enough for him with quality players at the receiver position they just haven't you look over the last few years with the exception of Ty Montgomery, who was a receiver for about 15 minutes. They haven't drafted a guy until this year, right? In the top 100 for whatever, six or seven years. I forget what the stat is. You know it. But it's just, it's one of these things. You don't want to make too big a deal of it, but you just wonder when you see Aaron Rodgers, you know, what he thinks. He either thinks, man, I am pretty incredible. To be able to lift this team and and lead the NFL in in total offense when most of our, most of my receivers are very marginal players, but again, I also think that that's part of a team, you know. So, I I'm not I'm not I'm not altogether down on uh, the Packers and what they've done. I am down on how much they've done at the receiver position.
0: Fantastic. I know we've got a few hands up here. Uh, I think Joe was first in New York. And just so you know, Peter, he told his fiance to beat it Friday night to hang out with <laughs> you. So he said, you know what, I don't want to go to the movies. I don't want to go out to dinner. I'm hanging out with Peter King. So I, I know he has this question locked and loaded. Okay.
5: <laughs> yeah, she's in the other room right now watching <laughs> something I would hate probably. So you saved me from that, anyways. Uh, Peter, nice to meet you, sir. Um, question. You. Okay, question. Um, this is actually a, a vaccine COVID question. Um, I'm a Bills fan, and right now there's some there's a little bit of controversy between some of the Bills players about getting the vaccine shot, and like some of them are kind of like really not into it or maybe they are, but they're not commenting on it. But I would say they're probably not into getting it from all your, your sources around the league. How do you feel the NFL, like the players, the league, like are approaching this? Like, are they, I know that the, they they can't make you get the vaccine, but are they kind of like giving you like, like as much information as possible to like, be like, Hey, go get the vaccine. So you don't have to wear a mask. Like, what's the feeling you have from coaches, players, anyone that you've talked to, like, is there, is there like a hundred percent people are in, or are there going to be those people who are like, I'm not getting it anything along those lines?
1: Well, there's definitely going to be a bunch of people who don't get it. Um, it's kind of sad in my opinion, but I, so I'll tell you a couple of things. So last week, this week in my column, I wrote about one team that uh, as of, last Saturday had 65 of 90 players on their training camp roster or their off season roster, 65 out of 90 had gotten the shot. Now that I'm not saying that's altogether an outlier, but that's mostly an outlier. Uh, I don't think, I think I, I made some calls this week. I think there's probably five or six teams right now that have 60 players vaccinated, certainly not half. And I would say half, I would say about half uh, have 40 or more, about half, but there's no exact numbers yet. The NFL doesn't keep an exact tab on this in the offseason, or they haven't yet. So here's what that means. That means, and I don't think there is a single team right now that is at 85%, which would take 77 vaccinated players so i think there are a lot of teams like buffalo right now a lot of teams like buffalo where you have a bunch of players who for whatever reason political religious whatever it is they have players who don't want to take the vaccine now um i really think that things could change and perhaps will change once all the rules get put down because it is very likely that one of the rules, if you do not take the vaccine, okay? What that means is that during the season, you're gonna have to do exactly what you did last year, which is every day, uh, mostly before 8 a.m., you have to go into your facility and you have to get a nasal swab test. So what does that mean? You know, every time during the week, let's say you have Victory Monday and you have Monday and Tuesday off. Doesn't matter. You got to get up at seven o'clock, get in your car. You got to go get swabbed and then you go back home. What does that mean? Well, probably it means that during your bye week that you are going to have to not go anywhere. Let's say you're a Buffalo Bills player. I mean, let's say you're Josh Allen, for instance, and I have no idea. Would Josh Allen go home to Wyoming in his bye week? I I don't I have no no clue. But if Josh Allen doesn't get vaccinated, he can't go anywhere in his bye week. He's got to stay in Buffalo and he's got to show up in Orchard Park, seven o'clock, eight, whatever it is, every morning of his bye week to get tested. So (laughs) this coach who told me that he had 65, he goes. He said, I think our team, as well as many teams around the league, once players realize what the full story is, that there's going to be a lot more people getting vaccinated, even if they still are either skeptical about the vaccine, or for political or whatever reasons, they don't want to take the vaccine. So that's a long way of answering the question. Uh, and 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 the the other answer is i have i don't know how many teams are going to get to 85% but i believe there's going to be a huge advantage to getting to 85% competitively because just imagine let's say you know the bills are playing whatever i don't even know their schedule they're playing the patriots in late november and five unvaccinated players three of them starters, you know, somehow, some way they get COVID and they're out and they got a huge game against the Patriots and three, four, five players can't play because of it. I mean, the whole world is getting back to normal. The whole world is, and you're going to have teams and you are going to be just watching from the outside. Your kids are going to school every day. They're going without masks. This this is happening. That's happening. And yet you have to still wear a mask every day. And you have to not be able to be normal around your team. And it's just, look, obviously, I think it is absurd that people are not getting vaccinated. Absurd. But the fact is, who cares what I think? Nobody cares. But if players don't get the vaccine, I think their lives are going to be hugely affected in 2021.
0: And we are not allowed in locker rooms either way, Peter. So, you know,
1: well, at least as of now, as of now, (laughs) you know, I, you know, as people know the probably know the, uh, uh, the Washington post, uh, Mark Maskey and Will Hobson reported today that, uh, it's likely that locker rooms won't be open this year. Um, And I'm not saying that that isn't true, but what I am saying is I do think that that has not been, that decision has not been reached with any finality because we are three months away from three months and a week away from the first game of the season. We're a hundred days away from the start of the season. Things can happen. I don't know what's going to happen, but that would really piss me off. But what are you going to do? Well, if you need somebody
0: to grab a trite and go to war with you, let me know. I'm ready to, ready to roll, Peter. But uh, I know John and Mark, they've, they've been uh, waiting here patiently. So I think John was first. Let her rip.
1: Peter, first off, thank you for um, taking your time to do this. We really appreciate sure. it. Uh, quick question. not Not very often that you get someone in the quote, room where it happens uh, for the Hall of Fame discussions. I'm wondering about Leroy Butler. Do you think he's close? Do you think 2022 is the year?
5: Um, do you think he's all Hall of Famer? Uh, let us know where you think he's at on that. Thank you.
1: You know, I think it's close with him, but I would support his candidacy for the Hall. Um, and, and look, Pete Doherty really does a good job He is a, um, he's an extremely conscientious voter, and he takes it very seriously. Um, And I think he's done a very good job with it. I think what has happened, you know, I've tried to, I've tried to explain this to people about the Hall of Fame room, that it's, it's difficult a lot of times to sit here and say, do you think 22 is Leroy Butler's year? I mean, I think he's got a really good chance in 22, but I would also make this point about it that if you look at, and I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but I don't. um, I would say up until about six years ago, we had put in one pure safety in 20 years and probably over the last five, six years, there've been six or seven safeties who've gone in and maybe even more than that. Uh, But I think a lot of times you get into a place as a hall of fame voting committee where, I think this happened at safety, where you say, this is absurd that we have ignored this position for so long. And so in some ways you might overcompensate. You might put in too many guys from one position for a while because you're trying to make up this historical debt that we as a committee have incurred. You know, it's sort of mindful of, you know, when, um, when, all the, the COVID negotiations are taking place and you're trying to figure out how much money should we give every person in America. And you hear all of these stories about massive unemployment, restaurants going down, colleges closing, all these huge, massive problems, layoffs, everything. And so what happens? Maybe you overcompensate, maybe you give them too much money and maybe you you take away some of the motivation to actually go out and work to get paid. But again, that's probably a bad comparison. But I think in this particular case, what ended up happening is that we as a Hall of Fame committee felt like we really got to do a lot better at the safety position. And in some ways, Butler's almost the last one. He's almost the last guy because so many of the guys who've been waiting and waiting and waiting like you know, Steve Atwater and John Lynch now they're in. So, you know, hopefully whether it's this year or next year uh, you know, he gets in because he is a worthy candidate.
0: Love it. Love it. I think there's a lot of people in here that agree with you <laughs> for sure. Uh,
1: Mark. But you know they, what, Ty, can I, yeah. can I just say this, Tyler? No doubt. I want to, I want to say this, that you um, you know, when I hear about, when I hear complaints about Leroy Butler, they're either uh, people who are writing to me from Jacksonville, Florida, where Butler is from, or from Packerland. And so when people are upset about Randy Gratishar, it's Bronco Nation. Uh, Joe Jacoby, it's all the WFT fans. It's, and so All politics are local. All Hall of Fame arguments are local. And so to be honest with you, I, I, I mean, I have a little more respect if a Chicago bears fan would say, you know, Leroy Butler's really getting job. You know, I've watched him. I watched him for a long time. It was Reggie. It was Reggie white. It was Favre, and then it was Butler. And so, but so I don't, I understand the way Packer fans feel about him, but there is a candidate for every fan group that they feel like this guy's getting job too. You know, quite honestly, I think if I were to look at the two guys right now who I really think have, uh, you know, who deserve it, one of them is Steve Tasker, um, and one of, him, one of them is, uh, is Tony Baselli. And Baselli has the curse of a short career. Uh, Tasker has the curse of being a special teams player. Steve Tasker is the best special teams player in the 102-year history of the NFL. Period. End of story. He should be in the Hall of Fame. But it's hard to get a guy in uh, who over the course of his career played approximately 22% of the snaps. It's just not an... uh, it's not an easily winnable argument but anyway that's my opinion about it
0: you got to get Leroy and Steve we should have got them on here we they, they, they both want to come on we could have had everybody here to talk about it uh, Mark thanks so much for hanging man I know I know you got a question
2: yeah absolutely thanks I'm um, thanks for bringing up Steve Tasker Peter I was just thinking of that as we were having this conversation from the representative for the Bills perspective but I had a I had a question for you, Peter. That you've been covering the league a long time. I've been a long time fan of your your writing, your podcast, all that stuff. And you know, as a Bills fan, I'm curious from your perspective if you noticed the big change when the ownership of the Bills changed in terms of you know your interaction with the, the team. And for, as a fan, it seemed like we were just like kind of the the joke of the league for a long, for the last you know yeah. decade or two of Ralph Wilson's tenure. And I'm wondering if you noticed of any kind of change from the professionalism or the way that, you know, the way you interact with NFL clubs, if you noticed a change in the Pagula spot the
1: club. I forget what year Derek Boyko got there as the PR guy, but Derek Boyko is one of the five best PR guys in the league. And uh, he came from Philadelphia. You know, he's a Buffalo guy and all that, but he came from Philadelphia. That, quite honestly, was the first thing that i noticed um and again I, I, I don't i don't mean this in a negative way but i'm not really much of an owner guy and i'm sure the Pagulas have done a great job and and i and, and and terry pagula and, and kim have done things differently and all that stuff but to me this is what t- good teams are about a general manager a coach and a quarterback and the Pagulas have picked the right, you know, uh, uh, coach, GM, uh, who have then picked the quarterback, obviously, or whatever order it came in. I know that, um, what's his name? Um, uh, Bean didn't come in until after that, you know, that first year or the, the, the first draft. But I guess what I'm saying is that I think it's the professionalism of the whole organization. It's just the fact that, look, if, and again, I'm, I'm not uh, anti Sammy Watkins or anything like that. Um, But the fact is that, you know, once you realize that a guy is not what you thought he was, you got to make the decision to move on. And, you know, Sammy Watkins has proven that he's a 11. 12-game-a-year player, if that. He's very good when he's on the field, but he's hurt way too much to count on him. And unfortunately for the Bills, that cost him two ones. And, you know, some of the other picks they made, obviously E.J. Manuel. I mean, there's a litany of guys who really didn't work out, as you guys know. But I think that the three people they have in place right now are going to make them competitive, and I'm not saying they'll be the patriots of the 20s and 30s, but they're going to be good for a while, maybe a long while, and I think it's in large part because of the hirings that uh, that the Pagool has made.
0: Good stuff. Uh, Sam, I, th- I think you were throwing yeah, your hand. Thanks. Up uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks again for joining us, Peter. Uh, another sure. piece of news that
2: came out today was the basically the banning of Toradol as a the painkiller um what's your do you have any thoughts on that and then specific to the Packers I remember hearing that the the Packers team doctors don't really recommend using that um I don't know if you know anything about that but do you foresee the Packers being less affected by these new regulations
1: I have no idea what the Packers do with Toradol or you know Toradol is one of these um you know, dirty little NFL secrets over the years. And it's, it's interesting. I'll never forget that, you know, late in his career, when it wasn't, when nobody thought ill of Toradol, they thought it was, Hey, it was a great drug. John Elway, I remember in his last year talked about really benefiting from Toradol. Um, And it was not, it was, it was not a dirty drug or anything like that, but the more players have taken Toradol, you know, it can have deleterious effects to other parts of your body if you take it regularly. Now people know that. So to me, I think it is a, uh, I think it's a really good move by the NFL. Um, I think it's the kidney that it affects. But it's, it, it's a good move by the NFL because if you need Toradol to play football, that week you probably shouldn't be playing football.
0: That's a great point. I mean, I remember doing a story, a bleach report on Tordal and for the longest time, like it was the shot, you know, it was that old school shot in the ass, right? Everybody was lined up, ready to take it. And over time it became a pill and it was just easier to take. And I don't know. I had a few players, tell me, Peter, I mean, maybe you've heard the same thing. The anti-inflammatories are are just the rage now, like a lot of just taking a lot of anti-inflammatories, maybe too much. Um, So I don't know how you stay on top of it. It, It's that balance of like, you know, kind of covering up the pain that you have that maybe you should be addressing versus playing. I I guess it comes down to the player himself, but at some point the team does have to step in and say, we can't allow you to put yourself at risk.
1: I, I mean, I agree, but I think what ends up happening is that you really have to trust that your doctor is going to have a conscience and I think some doctors have a conscience if the head coach approves of that conscience and so that's why to me, uh, there's a trainer for the New York Giants who's been there since, heck, I covered the Giants in the mid-80s, he was there then, it's a guy named Ronnie Barnes, great guy. Uh, one of the most respected medical professionals uh, in in the NFL over the last, quarter, last 30 years. But anyway, my point is that the New York Giants look at Ronnie Barnes, even a guy, even a, a hard charging, my way or the highway guy like Bill Parcells, and he looked at Ronnie Barnes and Ronnie Barnes, what Ronnie Barnes said was gospel. Hmm. And that is what you need in your organization. You need medical people who the general manager and the coach and the owner just said, Well, what does Ronnie say? And luckily, the New York Giants have had that guy. I just, I, I probably should, over the years, have done more reporting on this. I don't know how many people, how many teams have a Ronnie Barnes, but I think that is invaluable for the players as much as anything else. Because quite honestly, I think we've seen not in this generation so much, but in the prior generations that, hey, listen, just tape it up and get out there. And, you know, that's changing. And obviously that's for the better.
0: Or you just stab Tyra Taylor in the lung,
1: you know? I mean, oh my gosh. Jesus. <laughs> that's the it's, most incredible thing.
0: <laughs> we had a player on here saying that that's like the norm. Like this that, that kind of stuff happens more than we even know. But wow. Uh, I think uh, Joe and then Brandon and Bill and Corey. So we got, we got a bunch here. So thank Thanks for winding yeah. up fellas. Hey Peter. Thanks again. Um, you mentioned Steve Tasker
5: before. Uh, there's a lot of bills fans on this chat. Can you talk about what it was like? Cause I remember like reading your stuff in like the early nineties with like the bills going to the super bowls, any memories of like covering them, your favorite players you covered, or least favorite or anything along those lines with those early nineties
1: builds. Um, there was a, a Friday night in training camp in Fredonia, New York in the glory years and, um, basically Bill's team meetings, um, would be finished at about 940, uh, over, you know, at SUNY Fredonia. And I don't know if anybody knows the White Inn in Fredonia, but it's a nice bar. It's just a bar, bar, you know. And um, so Scott Birch told, who was the PR guy at the time, I had come into town to cover a training camp on that Saturday. Uh, And I got into town on Friday evening and I I said, hey, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to be over at the White Inn. Why don't you come over? So we went over at the White Inn. I think the Yankees were on TV, and we're just sitting there having a beer. And he goes, hey, you're in the right spot because in a little while, a bunch of players are gonna be coming in. And I said, oh, that's cool. And he goes, they will have one hour. Okay. (laughs) And and I said, oh, okay, one hour. And so I would say at about 9.48, um, I bet 30 bills came into the bar and, uh, you know, they basically took over one section of the bar and they just started pounding them. And I would say, I look, I don't know. I didn't count, but I would say Jim Kelly. Uh, I mean, Kelly was there. Thurman was there. I don't know if Bruce was there. Daryl Talley was there. Um, I mean, look, there are a lot of players there, but, but what I, what I remember is that it was about Birchtold kept looking at his watch and it was maybe 947 and he goes, all right, Jim, let's go. And so Jim Kelly put his beer down and he went out and he got in told passenger seat. I got in the back seat, um, and he was going to drop me at my hotel, Scott was. And I get in the back seat. And so this entire bar just emptied out like it was a fire drill. And Kelly got in the car, Birch told, hustled up. It was a six-minute drive back to campus. And he got him back maybe 10.56. And he gets out. He goes into his dorm. I get dropped off. And But anyway, that's that's really... It's not very bawdy, but that's kind of one of my memories of, of covering the Bills over the years. They, they like their beer.
0: (laughs) I know a Bills fan from that era. Don has a, has a Bills question here too. So let her rip. So
1: yeah,
3: Peter, just love, love your writing. Loved when you used to be on GR all the time. I told my wife you were going to be on here tonight and she was, yeah, Peter King really, no way. Um, So my, my question isn't necessarily bills related, but if
4: you were commissioner for a day, what what would the first thing be that you would try to accomplish?
1: I mean, it's so I got a very quirky thing that I hate. There's one thing that I truly hate about the NFL, just truly hate, and that is um, – the spot foul for pass defensive pass interference. It drives me out of my effing mind because I have seen teams in training camp practice that just throw an EFIS pitch 40 yards downfield, slow up so that the cornerback runs over you. It's like the other night, you know, watching the Knicks in the playoffs and Trey young of the Hawks has perfected the art of stopping And going up knowing that somebody is leaning on his back. So if he's shooting a three, he's got three free points. And that to me is an abuse of the rules. And over the years, uh, you know, defensive players have been wrongly wronged time and time and time again because they get screwed by the spot foul and pass interference. And most people will say to me, well, you know. Then all a guy who gets beat, all he has to do is he has to tackle the receiver and he knows it's just going to be a 10 yard penalty or whatever. And I said, listen, I've asked David Shaw, the Stanford coach, I've asked him on a couple of occasions about this exact story. And he said, it very, very rarely happens in college football that a cornerback who gets beat on a, on a long pass, then tackles the guy because he gets past him. And there's a very simple reason that just because the guy has beat you on that doesn't mean it's going to be a 55-yard gain. The pass still has to be there. And, and, you know, and very often the pass is either way overthrown or it's out of bounds or whatever it is. But anyway, my whole point is there's probably 900 things I could and should be outraged about, but over the years, that pisses me off because it is a BS uh, using of the rules that, uh, or abuse of the rules that is not in the spirit of the game.
4: Um, One other quick thing. Do you think uh, DBs are holding too much nowadays?
1: No more than offensive players are because it's hand fighting out there and I think each guy has a right within reason to slap the other guy away or to do you know if you do a two-hand shove or you do something when the ball is coming that's got to be called interference but I'm not really bothered by the physicality between corners and receivers thank you mm-hmm. well well
0: said man uh I think Rhino were you were you Line up next yeah yeah
4: I just said I had a quick question for Peter so Peter you know when he took over the beat uh for the Bengals it was towards the end of Ken Anderson's career but my I wanted to ask you this my father has made the comment that Ken Anderson was one of the more underrated quarterbacks of the 70s and 80s he really got looked over with your uh John Elway's your Dan Marinos and whatnot Where in your in your knowledge and your your experience what do you think about Ken Anderson where do you think he stands among the quarterbacks of that of that era
1: Kenny Anderson was such an interesting person because you're right. I started covering the Bengals in 1984 when, uh, when, uh, ah, shit, I'm watching the Red Sox and Yankees on the other. uh, (laughs) (laughs) The first baseman just threw it away to Evaldi covering first. But, um, so, you know, ken anderson was just really really a great guy but that was the year they drafted boomer Siasen to replace him and a lot of people were a little surprised because ken anderson was not an old man uh and to to replace ken anderson at whatever age he was i'm guessing 33 maybe 34 i don't know i i I just thought it was—I thought it was a little precipitous by the Bengals, but obviously they love Boomer, and Boomer became their guy in '80. '80 was the MVP, so uh, whatever. But I do know from covering that team and from covering that division, I'll tell you what was really interesting: the Steelers had an incredible amount of respect for Ken Anderson, and when they would play games at Three Rivers Stadium. Anderson many times would sort of hustle out of the Bengals locker room and he would meet Jack Lambert in the Steelers trainers room and they would have a beer before Anderson got on the bus to get out of town, you know, to go to the airport. And I mean, just imagine that. Imagine Jack Lambert, you know, basically saying that uh, that, you know, I respect this guy enough, this competitor who we just fought like hell against to have a beer with him after the game. So the question might be, does Ken Anderson belong in the Hall of Fame? Look, I, I've studied his case. It's very close. I think he's probably shy. The Bengal, the Bengals player who who I think probably deserves it is Ken Riley, the rattler, the safety, um, who intercepted a lot of balls and was the leader the unquestioned leader on some good defensive teams. Now, look, I think there's a lot of guys who belong in the Hall of Fame, but because of where they played, uh, the record of the team when they played, like, you know, Clay Matthews. Clay Matthews belongs in the friggin' Hall of Fame. It's ridiculous. I don't mean Clay Matthews, the Packer. I mean, Clay Matthews, the Brown. He absolutely belongs in the Hall of Fame. Played more games than any linebacker in the history of the NFL. Um, You know, he led the Atlanta Falcons, his second team, in sacks uh, when he was 39 years old. I mean, just there are some things that really should happen that are long overdue, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, Tasker is, is in that group.
0: Man, I do not envy your position every Super Bowl Eve in that room, man. It's just like, it's easy for all of us to criticize what happens in there. And this guy should be in, that guy should be in it. When when it really comes down to it, you've got to make some really hard decisions on everybody.
1: When you think about it, think about it, Tyler. There's 15 modern era candidates every year. And every year when I look at that thing, I have this little process I go through, but when I'm doing my homework, I look at the list of 15 and I say, how many of these guys, if they are in the final five candidates, how many of these guys would I vote for for the Hall of Fame? Last year, I had 12. So I can't put 12 in. I can't put seven of those 12 people in. So, you know, people was, oh, why would you vote against this guy? I, I, I didn't. <laughs> you know i i voted for him until i couldn't vote for him anymore but anyway <laughs> that's just the way it goes but it's a it's a tough thing but it's an important thing to a lot of people also
0: man well th- thanks so much for hanging with us i think we got a couple more sure. here uh bill and uh cory bill wants to let her rip
2: hey, hey uh yeah thanks peter uh enjoyed uh reading over the years and uh having watched kind of grown up in the 80s you mentioned the Giants. Uh, just remember watching a lot of NFC East football. What uh,
4: It's
1: kind of a general question, but what was it like covering the, the NFC East with the Titans of Parcells and Gibbs and Tom Landry and just that whole group? It was just kind of a big game every week, it seemed like. Well, Tom Landry uh, was at the end of his superpowers basically in the late 80s. You know, they were they were a somewhat competitive team, but many years they were well behind Philadelphia and Washington and the Giants. So, uh, and obviously the bottom fell out after uh, Landry got, uh, left and Jimmy's first year in 1989, they were one in 15. But um, I always felt, Parcells told me one time I was covering the Giants and I asked him a question about, Why does the NFC East team get so far every year? Why have they won the Super Bowl X number of times and gotten deep into the playoffs? He goes, because it's like you get calloused every year playing in this division. Your toughest games in many cases are your division games. And you go out of division or out of conference and you say, man, that was was pretty easy. Or, or that, that that wasn't what a division game is. And so I think that's part of it. But I also think the other part that was interesting is that the head coaches just wanted to rip each other's throats out. I mean, you know, Parcells, it isn't that he hated Joe Gibbs, but they absolutely were not friendly. Now, they've gotten friendly since they they quit. But I'll tell you, there was – if you ever saw the end of a Washington – Giants game. And you saw the handshake at midfield between Gibbs and Parcells. Gibbs very often would give him that little limp wrist, fish, wet fish <laughs> handshake or dead fish handshake, you know, where he basically touches his hand and then he's gone. You know, and one of the reasons is Gibbs was not a, Gibbs, I wouldn't say he's a poor loser, but Gibbs was not a good loser. Parcells was not a good loser. Buddy Ryan was a, bad loser. And so you had all these guys, they wanted to kill each other. And, and I think that was reflected and they all had, especially Washington and the giants had really, really good personnel departments that in a time of George Young and Bobby Bethard, they were really getting good players to sort of buttress the, you know, the stars that they had. So I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. I remember the night that uh, that Thiesman—I was—I covered the game the night that Thiesman got his legs snapped. Everybody always said, "Ah, that was by Lawrence Taylor." Well, it was by Lawrence Taylor and Gary Reasons pretty equally. But what I remember about that after the game is how sick the Giants were. Not only—I mean, they lost the game, but they were sick. You know, they. They were sure that they had ended Heisman's career. And in effect, they did. And there was a lot of mutual respect, a lot of mutual respect between those teams. So that was, I mean, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I covered the Bengals in 1984. I watched practice half the summer that year with Paul Brown, the owner of the team. You know, he gave me an education on football. I never could have gotten anywhere else. And then I go cover the New York Giants. Parcell's was a writer's dream uh in so many ways. Uh, and really ended up teaching a lot of the writers a lot about football. So I, I got I got I got pretty lucky over the years.
0: Man, that's a fantastic question. I mean, I just love learning about past eras. You know, like Michael McCambridge's book is just fantastic. Yeah. Finally diving into that and just it's a great book. Oh my God! I mean, that goes way back, you know, to the 40s and 50s. But yeah, there's just you know, so many of us we just can't comprehend what football was like before our lifetime. And I mean, that's not too far back, but I, I love those uh, those battles. These coaches hating each other, Maybe, like not hate, but really not liking each hey, other. Hey, speaking
1: of that, you want to hear a funny story?
0: Let's see. So let's in see
1: 19 that. in 1987, uh, in week five of the season the New York Giants played at Buffalo that year and if you don't know this in 1987 after the first two weeks of the season the players went on strike so each team selected a strike team you know they got players and they told the the veteran players if you want to show up and make your money come in but if you don't we're playing the games and you're not getting paid. So the Giants had a horrible strike team. And in week three of their, there were only three weeks of strike football. But in the last week, Lawrence Taylor showed up, Jeff Rutley showed up, a backup quarterback. And so they were now gonna have a respectable strike team. They came to Orchard Park, New York. And uh, the, uh, the the Jets or the, the Bills, had a guy, I think I'm getting his name right. His name was Joe Schultz. He was a truck driver from Southern Illinois and he was playing left tackle. And that game, Joe Schultz got six penalties on Lawrence Taylor. And at the end of the game, Lawrence Taylor went after Joe Schultz. And he said, I'm gonna gouge your effing eyes out. And uh, so the Bills won that game six to three. Uh, because the Giants, Lawrence Taylor began playing tight end for him in the second half because they were so pathetic. And at the end, near the end of the game, the Giants had a fullback from Hawaii named Kalana Park. And at the end of the game, Jeff Rutledge looked like he was going to throw a potential go-ahead touchdown pass to Lawrence Taylor, trolling the back of the end zone, waiting. I'm open. I'm open. Throw it to me. And he throws it. And Kalana Park the fullback of the Giants, who was also out in the pattern, he jumped up really high and he tipped the ball away. And the Bills won the game six to three because Kalana Park, in his last moment of of uh infamy for the New York Giants, batted away the winning touchdown pass intended for Lawrence Taylor in that game. But anyway, that's my uh that's uh that's a little memory from nineteen eighty seven that Because none of you were alive then. I just wanted to share with you. Uh,
5: That was the
4: worst game ever played in NFL history. It
1: was. It was. Don knows. (laughs) That was utterly pathetic.
3: It was brutal. I think Will Grant played center. He came out of retirement for the Bills to play on that team. I don't know. Can you
0: imagine that happened today? I mean, it would be insane.
1: (laughs) Hey, imagine that week. You know that week that I was in Buffalo? You know the quarterback for the Chicago Bears that week? Sean Payton.
4: Get out of here.
1: Sean Payton from Eastern Illinois. He was the guy. And uh, anyway, there were all kinds of weird things that happened. The giant, the first, the guy who scored the first touchdown for the Giants, I forgot his name, uh, like three years after he scored the touchdown, I think against the 49ers on Monday Night Football, three years after that, he was arrested for murder. And uh, he's in prison in Connecticut to this day. For murdering somebody and he's in the giants record book for scoring a touchdown. <laughs> oh my god.
0: Oh my god. Oh Corey, I, I'm sorry, man. You've been hanging there for a bit. No, no worries. Uh Peter, I'm a big
2: fan. Um I get I guess Thank the you. one question that other people probably aren't as interested in hearing the answer to, but in terms of advice on aspiring you know sports writers, you know, it's a different age getting credentials and COVID has kind of changed everything. What piece of advice would you have for, you know, someone like myself that wants to take the same career path that you've taken?
1: I mean, I, I feel terrible, um, for, for young people today who are trying to get in this business because it's so much harder. If you cover football today, you can't stand with Paul Brown and watch practice for 30 days. It's just stuff like that, that just doesn't happen. You can't you know get so close to players uh as we used to be able to do because the great big machine of the NFL doesn't allow it. And I feel bad. I feel bad for for young writers, but you know, I think the one the well I'd say the two things that I think are the most important things today are to be well rounded, to be versatile. Stories are going to need to be told, but you don't know how you're going to be able to tell them. And in some ways, you know, you might have to tell them like there was no such thing as a podcast 10 or 15 years ago. Now, every time I ride my bike, I live in Brooklyn, every time I ride my bike, I put a podcast on with these AirPods air buds, whatever they're called. And I listen to the podcast. I love podcasts. It's fantastic. Um, and you know, there's a lot of different things like that. So I would say being versatile is number one. And number two is just be prepared to devote X number of years in your life to being told no and being told we don't need you and, and have the determination to not allow that to dictate your life and take some chances. Look, I I remember somebody asked me this question a few years ago at a college. And I said, you should not go one day of your college life without sitting down and writing something. If you really wanna be a sports writer, no matter whether it's published or not, you gotta write. You know, it's it's just like, it's like making cabinets. And the only way you learn how to make cabinets is to make cabinets and you screw up a bunch of them. And you know. so you gotta write as many sentences as you can that don't count before you start writing sentences that actually count. And I realize that doesn't help you get a job, but just be ready when your time comes and somebody actually gives you that shot to be really, really good.
0: I appreciate it, thank you.
1: Okay. That was awesome. I gotta walk the dog in three minutes. Do we have one last thing?
0: that'd be perfect brandon i think you got to bring us home here man <laughs> well uh peter if you if you love podcasts
3: i have heard title town lounge uh you can find it on apple google spotify <laughs> i heard i heard it's phenomenal uh and if you ever want to <laughs> jump on we would we would love to have you but um title
1: town lounge okay thank you
3: title town lounge ty's been a, a frequent flyer uh on the show. And we're, we're so grateful for that. We'd love to have you one day, but I do want to ask um, with a little bit of the player movement, you see it in the NBA. Your guys aren't happy. They go to another team. Uh, we've seen it in major league baseball. Um, it happens all the time. Now, obviously cap, you know, numbers are different in all those sports um, in this off season, We've heard Russell Wilson publicly come out and say he, he wants this or that. And we've obviously are dealing with the Aaron Rodgers drama. Do you think that the NFL is going to one day transition away from an owner's run league into more of a player's run uh, league?
1: Well, I don't think it has to be one or the other necessarily, but I do think like we talked earlier, what's the harm if you're John Schneider in Seattle, having Russell Wilson come into your office once a week for 20 minutes, just to talk. I agree. I mean, what, what harm can that do? And, you know, it's not just there, it's almost everywhere. I just think, I think we're living in a time. Is it, is it disrespectful to listen to everybody in your organization? No, I think it's almost respectful. It is respectful, And I definitely think, that the one thing that this Aaron Rodgers story should teach everybody is that you better appreciate who you have and within reason to allow their voices to be heard um, or else one day you might wake up and you'll be in a situation that is right now probably ruining Mark, Murphy, Mark Murphy's life. <laughs>
0: Well, if they just trade him and embrace Jordan Love, everything's perfectly fine, and they'll they'll be able will trans- <laughs> be they'll be perfectly- general
1: manager Tyler Tyler Dunn has spoken. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Peter, you are unbelievable! God, thanks so much for spending a, a Friday night with us. That was that you're was welcome, fantastic. You're welcome, guys. Enjoyed doing so much. it. That was great. But, hey, yeah.
1: listen, Tyler, I love what you're doing. I love your site. I love so much of uh, what I read from you. And, I'm a big fan, and I really wish you the best.
0: Oh man, that that means so much. God, well, th- thanks for being a subscriber and and sharing the word, man. Um, and you're welcome here anytime. That this is a great crew. That those were some awesome questions, everyone. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good weekend. Thank you, you care, too. sir. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.